This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, on yesterday's episode, we took a look at the life and times of Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. So I thought what we do today is do the same for the other guy, uh, President Putin of Russia. Uh, so coming up on the podcast today, the making of a monster, how we got to where we are and what might happen next. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel on a Tuesday. It is, of course, Finkovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich yeah. on Times Radio. How did I forget how that ended? Yes, it's that... It's that time for everyone's favourite Tuesday columnist pairing. It is Daniel Finkovich. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Uh, uh, what did, I, did I just say Daniel Finkovich? Daniel you, you did. So, so, so you're sorry. now going to have to say David Finkovich for, uh, to me. And we're also and we can joined kind of completely merge. David of Onestein. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been said. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's I been think that said. means you've now both been properly married. Um, uh, it's not well. It's good to have you both here, anyway, uh, to pick through um, what is going on. One of the questions I wanted to ask, but in this genuine, because um, I'm slightly torn about the answer, is the extent to which politicians, British politicians, I suppose in particular, are rising to the occasion. And uh, I was particularly struck. I mean, you know, it is only words, but words in these situations matter. Some of the words they put out, Liz Truss is making a speech somewhere today. And I mean, you wouldn't describe the extracts they put out necessarily as Churchillian. Um, but also in terms of policy, too, are, is much of Britain's response still seems quite uh, normal, traditional, orthodox. You know, Pretty Patel will, will be dragged kicking and screaming to a big open offer on uh, Ukrainian refugees, but but not without going through the, you know, treating it like a minor, you know, the, the idea they could come here and pick fruit if they wanted to. Um, D- Danny, what do you what do you make of the that idea of, of we're slightly lacking to not quite rise to the occasion? 
Yeah, I don't fully agree with that. I, 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 let's, let's first of all say the right thing to do, obviously, to look at any government response is what more can be done? Where do we think it's not going for, it's going not far enough? And I certainly would agree that uh, on visas, they've got work to do. I want to see what they've got to propose. I'm not happy with what we've got so far. We've got to go further. Uh, but one of the reasons why Germany has risen further than we have is because it had further to go. Um, Britain has really been very early in on the UK. Ukraine uh, issue and critical to Ukraine's ability to resist. It's not just been weapons that we've helped supply, uh, but also uh, Operation Orbital, the training that we were uh, putting in. And I'm just influenced in this. You know, as you know, on this programme, we've been very critical of the Johnson government and of the Prime Minister. Um, so it's not just a sort of question of blind loyalty because he's a Tory and, you know, so am I. Uh, it, is, uh, it is influenced by my friends in Ukraine who've said to me, um, you know, on the ground, who've said to me, Actually, I'm generally very critical of Boris Johnson, but I think he's uh, been very important to us here. And um, they've been pretty impressed by the British government's response. It doesn't mean that we've done everything. So if you look at, um, you know, even the central bank sanctions or the uh, the fact that the SWIFT um, policy doesn't cover oil, uh, doesn't cover energy uh, supply, and therefore there's a big hole in those things. It doesn't mean they've done everything, but that may not actually be that sensible an idea at this point anyway, uh, because you you probably need to have the ability to to ratchet up further uh, as you go through the crisis and have some things that you can still do. Uh, so what I would say is I think it's reasonable to criticise the government um, for the things that it hasn't done, but within the context that its overall response, I think, has been uh, appropriate. David, your take? I think... <clears throat> the first thing to say is that in the scheme of things, um, this is such an international crisis and a crisis for the alliance that what an individual country does, unless it's the United mm. States, frankly, is, um, is, is a bit at the margins. It's what we collectively do uh, overall. Um, uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that uh, I realise that an almost existential problem has occurred as a result of what Vladimir Putin has done. It's the biggest crisis we've faced since the Second World War, bar absolutely none at all, certainly on the continent of Europe. Um, and a very big question is going to be whether or not we find ourselves, whether we like it or not, sucked into conflict, uh, proper conflict in one way or another as a consequence of it. I mean, uh, let's just remind ourselves that the sharp wisdom from very good people was that Putin was some kind of pragmatist who, even if he did do something horrible in Ukraine, would limit it to the Donbass and Luhansk. Remember all that stuff about breakaway regions and the clarity with which uh, we now understand his actual objectives and what they mean in terms of the extinction of an independent country in Europe, a country of 40 million people by its neighbour, which is not something we actually can allow to stand. And it does mean that whatever the consequences, it is going to have to find a way of being reversed. There's going to be incredible pressure in the next couple of days for a a, a, a far bigger and much more perilous response on the part of the West. So that's the background to it, Matt, really. Now, within the context of that, of course, in some ways, 
the British government in some ways has acted with a dexterity where its own interests were not directly uh, uh, affected or, or not quite so directly affected. So, for example, we buy very little energy from Russia. It is, Germany's been slow to act because it's a much bigger problem for them, a huge problem for them. But in taking the action they have, they've taken that very big problem on the chin. And I don't think it's fair to say that we have. We have two problems. Firstly, we are resistant as a government in government terms to taking refugees in any large numbers. So we haven't taken them and we're uh, and we're slow in dealing with it. And the second thing is to be drawing up a list at this stage, as we're apparently doing, of uh, to be sanctioned oligarchs. Given that we've been through Litvinenko and the Skripals and through Crimea, seems to me to be absolutely extraordinary. I don't understand it. I don't understand why that list wasn't ready to go the moment that it became clear that Putin was going to try and take uh, Ukraine. One further point with regard to what Danny said um, about SWIFT and leaving some sanctions till later. Later's now. Uh, we've already passed later. I mean, I, I, I would have said the same thing conceivably about two or three days ago, but uh, now, <laughs> later, later yeah, is the, actually... The reason important. we haven't done it, though, David, is because the because of German oil uh, and gas supply, rather. Um, so, you know, so rather does cut kind of cross the point that you've just made. I, I don't disagree with you that uh, I actually think the whole strategy of holding back sanctions doesn't work. That's why we, we've done it. But, it, uh, you know, I can I can understand uh, the reasons why we've done it, the argument for doing it. But I probably with you in the end wouldn't do it. But that's the reason why they've done it. All I'm saying is that all of Europe is now struggling with the size of the problem that we now face. I just don't think it, while it's right for us to concentrate on those things where we can rise to the occasion even more, I don't think it's fair to suggest that that we haven't been doing that. I think the right, the response has been um, you know, strong and we've actually been one of the forces inside the European Union, or inside the inside Europe, obviously the problem, one of the problems not being not in the European Union, but we've been one of the forces inside Europe and the, and the Atlantic Alliance arguing for stronger uh, policies and getting them as well. Yeah, but not the ones that affect us, Danny. I mean, and that's the point that I'm really that I'm really making. We've been arguing for stronger measures that affect other countries that's more. That's not true. The swift, where it, swift. Where, yeah, actually, actually, it is true. And when no, it, it comes down the to the challenge, things which swift yeah, it, banking. Not, oh, I wanna, yeah. what I tell no, you no, I'm not talking about swift banking. I'm talking about the refugees, and I'm also talking about the sanctions on uh, uh, on oligarchs. Both of things which affect us because of the uh, intertwining of the oligarchs' money with. Uh, with, with, with London and London finances and so on, and the refugees, because we know there's blowback from people about taking uh, refugees, yet we could have done what the EU has already done. And I do not understand why we don't. And it does seem to me that where we actually have to hazard things politically for this government, in other words, what I'm saying, Danny, is it talks a big talk, this government. It always says the big, big words. And the behind it, um, I don't think the action I think quite that's a, fits that. That's a fair criticism of the things they haven't done and not a fair reflection of the things that they have. And so therefore, uncharacteristically, it's simply not a fair assessment of their contribution. Right? I, I agree. I think for every country in the world, there are things that they could have seen that didn't see, there are things they could have done they haven't done. That there, are, there are all of those things. And this government is in no different position to anyone else. It's right to make the points that you make. We can go further. We should press for them to go further. It's simply not a reasonable assessment of the country's contribution that it hasn't stepped up it has done so and um 
in, in very many extremely significant ways. And you're quite correct, it also hasn't done so in other significant ways, but that's only half the picture. And it's not right only to deal with half the picture. I suppose um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's interesting that the, the, the calculation, I suppose, that leaders had made, probably all leaders have been making, is that, well, we can't do this because they won't do that. And actually, the extraordinary, there was a moment last week which really did bring everyone together and, and everyone has has acted simultaneously. Um, it's interesting, I've been still joined by Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Interesting, Boris Johnson, again, making this point that, that there are um, costs to Britain at home as well. And it feels like this is a message that the, all all senior ministers are trying to land right now, that, that, that this is not something that's happening a long way away, that we are, you know, actually, you know, to a large extent, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on passed off without huge impacts back here at home. But this is all the decisions being taken against Putin have real-life impacts back at home as well, Danny. Yes, they do. Uh, look, my, my view is that... Um, this is just at the beginning uh, of what will be, um, you know, uh, a, a, a battle in Ukraine, but also a long-standing war um, for against uh, autocracy uh, and for democracy, and that uh, the costs of it will be quite high, and the risks as well. And David's right. The um, the question we have to face now it will be a big moral question about the uh, the you know how much risk we're willing uh, to take ourselves in a, in a nuclear situation uh, to um, to defend the uh, Ukrainian uh, population and its uh, right to independent statehood. It's a very big challenge. We didn't make them members of uh, NATO, and they kind of there was a sort of uh, reason for that. So there is a. Uh, there is a question as over whether or not you know the guarantees that we make to those countries outside NATO and inside NATO should be the same. It's a, these are very very difficult questions. I'd, uh, you know, this morning there's a lot of people saying, well, we should declare a no fly zone, um, which is absolutely fine until people start firing each other, uh, and um, we have to decide whether we're willing to go as far as that. Uh, and you know, I do. You know, I've just been studying 1956 and what happened when when the Russians invaded Hungary, and effectively we ended up doing nothing uh, at all um, in those situations. We thought it was too dangerous. Well, our response to it has been better than that. Uh, but it's a question as to, uh, I suppose that you know Eisenhower would have responded, well, you know, what are you going to do once uh, once the Russians achieve their objective? Because it seems quite likely to me they will take Kiev. Um- David, it just feels as if we've gone from one extraordinary once-in-a-lifetime um, situation with the pandemic. Um, if, you know, all the restrictions have torn up on Thursday, the yeah. very day the, the tanks rolled into Ukraine, and we are we are right into another one. Uh, it really does, and as if that wasn't bad enough, um, the latest IPCC report mm. was talking about what's already baked in with regard to climate change. So there you face a number of kind of crises, which are not a crisis, we're not exactly interlocking but which are um, which take a terrible toll on people, actually, uh, and their resilience. And so resilience is absolutely going to be the key word uh, that we have to look at in, in, in all kinds of ways over the next five to ten years. Um, and I kind of feel in a kind of existentially guilty towards, you know, my children and coming grandchildren about the state of things, really, uh, and about maybe about the complacency with which we've gone through the last 
40 or so years not aware we couldn't have kind of known anything differently but that's how i see i mean that that's kind of how i feel about it however uh we do face we are going to face an incredibly difficult choice quite possibly within the next course of the next week whether we are prepared to allow putin to take over ukraine uh, unchallenged militarily or um, whether that's what we've got to do and then how we deal with the consequences or whether we decide we can't allow that to happen. Um, and I can't call that right now. Uh, I just am. I just kind of, uh, uh, forgive me for this, but I'm deeply depressed that that's where we are. Yeah, I don't, by the way, think, um, I think on the contrary from feeling a sense of guilt that um, that we've been complacent. I think the last 40 years has been an extraordinary achievement. What we're fighting for is to try to uh, preserve that. I don't think this has occurred as a result, result of our complacency. It's, it's occurred as a result of the fact that evil is extremely difficult to eliminate in this world uh, and to contain. Um, it just is. And um, I, I so I don't, I don't, um, I don't feel that, but I do. Um, I do share David's concern about what we do next. In truth, saying um, we don't know what to do, uh, in the hope that maybe it'll come to us in the next few days, is probably not going to come to us in the next few days. The no. dilemma, where the dilemma that we have will, will be the same in a week's time. Well, I mean, so one of the things that you suddenly think is: is it possible to organise some form of provisions lift into Kiev and so on? Can we do that? And if the Russians then fire upon it, then we have to have to cope with it. Then um, these are real kind of. I know Fraser. We probably can't. I mean, even if it wasn't to cause um, a direct. Um, uh, a direct confrontation is we almost certainly can't do it at this we probably don't have the logistics to do it um uh, in any case but we could organize a humanitarian attempt a humanitarian airlift which if the russians then opposed it there would be a loss of life so it's bloody easy for me to say isn't it because i wouldn't be flying one of those planes or or, or whatever but those are the things that we're going to be we, we're going to be faced with and then there's going to be the question of people going over the borders into ukraine to fight and then the question about whether the russians will then attempt cross-border incursions into nato countries all these things are likely to arise within the course of the next few weeks and we're going to have to have answers for them but they're not british government answers they're alliance answers they're the west's answers they're what we have to look at together that's the critical point about this concentrating for the in the near future on what the british government does on anything except let's say refugees and so on is largely pointless. I, I do agree with that. Um, just, just finally, do you think that, that, that we have those alliances? I mean, we, our, our international alliances haven't been brilliant in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, do you feel like that's having any impact on our ability to to, to come to some sort of agreement now, Danny? Well, inevitably, it's uh, it will have some impact. Yes, uh, inevitably it will. But on the other hand, in the area of uh, defence and security, we are particularly strong, and that to some extent off- offsets uh, the disadvantage we've put ourselves under as a negotiating partner. Um, but uh, it doesn't eliminate it. Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, The Making of a Monster. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Uh, this time yesterday, in our big thing, we told, uh, we told you about Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. For many, he's emerged from the war as an inspirational figure. He stood firm and refused offers of rescue. He's an actor and comedian who played a president and then became president for real. He was loved enough at one point to play the voice of Paddington in Ukraine. Mr. Brown, it's very brutal. Well, today we go from a small, friendly bear to a big, angry one. The President of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Let's hear more about who he is and how he became such a fierce adversary of the West. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin was born in the United in the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics, the USSR, seven years after the end of the Second World War. It was emerging as a superpower that dominated much of Europe and Asia, as well as wielding influence around the world. That dominance crumbled at the end of the Cold War. In Putin's time as president, his goal has been to restore Russia's importance in the world. Well, the opulence that Vladimir Putin now revels in is a world away from his childhood in what was then Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg. As a child, he carried a hunting knife, admitting later, I was a hooligan. Seriously, I was a real ruffian. More, present, more presently, perhaps, he once said, 50 years ago, the Leningrad street taught me a rule. If a fight is inevitable, you have to throw the first punch. He was a mediocre student with, student, with teachers remembering him showing a particular interest in espionage. He bought a book on spying, but never returned it. Even then, the rules didn't apply to him. 
Putin joined the KGB, recruiting informers and honing an expertise in detecting the weaknesses in others. He works in East Germany, a satellite of Russia, doing what exactly is unclear. But then the world changed. The Berlin Wall collapsed and with it the communist world. The USSR broke up into individual countries. Russia and Ukraine separated. Putin was then working in Dresden in East Germany, fearful of what this might mean. He returned to Russia and sought to shed his KGB clothes. In a documentary last year, he said that after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia's economy was so turbulent that he had to work as a private taxi driver in the 1990s to make ends meet. He then became an advisor to Anatoly Sobchak, who was the mayor of St. Petersburg. But when Sobchak lost re-election, Putin's evident talents led him to being offered a job in the presidential administration in Moscow. In 1996, Putin uh, came to the detention of President of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, who adopted him on his staff, making him first head of the SFB, the successor to the KGB, and then Prime Minister in 1999, the fifth in 17 months. Yeltsin's rule was chaotic, and he hoped Putin could shore up his regime. In fact, he brought about its end. Vladimir Putin then succeeded him. In 2000, a series of bomb attacks in Russia, in Russian cities, killed 300 people. Putin acted decisively, blaming Chechen separatists and sending the air force and troops to Chechnya. When you look back at film from the time, it's very familiar. Missiles raining down from jets, heavy artillery bombarding tower blocks, civilians firing back ineffectually. To this day, there remains a question about who was really behind the bombs that started the conflict, some even believing they were carried out to help Putin become president, which he duly did, as ABC reported at the time. In Russia today, the clear winner of the Russian presidential election, Vladimir Putin, began to establish the Putin era. Vladimir Putin, the career spy, talks about establishing what he calls a dictatorship of the law, fight corrupt bureaucrats and strengthen the central government. Putin, as president, showed a bloody-mindedness to crush opponents, albeit often with an air of plausible deniability. The dirty work was often done at arm's length. It's hard now to work out why we missed all the signs of what kind of man Putin really was. As early as 2006, the former Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned in London by radioactive material. There followed the routing of the Georgian army in 2008, taking back two separatist regions than the annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Bombing anti-government rebels in a move that bolstered Syrian government forces in 2015 and 2016. Then the Salisbury poisonings in 2018, targeting Sergei Skripal, a former Russian military officer and double agent for the British intelligence services, and his daughter, Julia, a young uh, local woman, was killed. At home, opponents have come and gone, as Nigel Fletcher listed for us this week. We're also fortunate, of course, that opposition here in the UK is um, free and peaceful, despite the occasional um, duels that we've talked about in in recent weeks. But of course, in Russia, um, there's no such freedom. And if we're talking about leaders of the opposition of the week, I think it's worth just reading out some names. Alexander Litvinenko, Sergei Mindlinsky, um, and of course, Boris Nemtsov, just three of the Russians who've opposed the Putin regime, who've been murdered by the Russian state uh, over the last 20 years. And of course, there are many more. Uh, That was Nigel Fletcher speaking to us yesterday. Well, Vladimir Putin has been accused of meddling in elections around the world, hacking, cyberbullying, 
while simultaneously using his vast wealth to infiltrate the upper echelons of Western society, notably in Britain, where politics, sport, business, the arts have all been tainted by the oligarch's checkbook. Unlike previous dictators, there's no great ideology. He's just a mafia gangster using money, not doctrine, to maintain his power. As Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster of Russian dissident and now chairman of the Human Rights Foundation, told Times Radio. It's about Putin's messianic beliefs that he could change history and turn it back. He was very clear, very specific, 15 years ago in Munich at the security conference in Europe, when he talked about return to the what he called spheres of influence. He wants to live in a world of 19th century where big guys, big countries could dictate smaller ones how to handle their domestic and foreign affairs. Putin is now the longest-serving Kremlin leader since Stalin. He seems determined to revive that era of Soviet dominance. His brand of conservative Russian nationalism owns more to the era of czarist absolutism than democracy. There are elections in Russia, but no one independent thinks they're done fairly. Putin also controls all the key levers of the media. Journalists who oppose him often end up dead. In 2005, Putin called the USSR's collapse the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. Fiona Hill, the former Russian advisor to Bush, Obama and Trump, told me last year that this crisis has been a long time coming. He and the group around him have been asking for, you know, best part of the last 21 years that he's been in power for a new settlement in Europe, a new security arrangement. They've been pushing this for an extraordinary long time, one way or another, uh, making it extraordinarily clear. Uh, Putin's Munich speech back in 2007 laid this out. Previous times before, um, under Boris Yeltsin, there were suggestions of, you know, could we not just sort of sit down and, you know, work things out so that there would become new rules of the game? Uh, you know, the ideas that Russia was going to join NATO and other European security institutions that we kind of you know, banded around at the very beginning of uh, the 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union really didn't go anywhere. Russians have been long dissatisfied with the NATO-Russia Council. They always wanted to have a veto on uh, NATO activity uh, nearby. In fact, they anticipated that NATO would not expand. That was kind of their understanding uh, under Gorbachev. Uh, and, you know, after 1999, when uh, NATO... But, warplanes bombed Belgrade during the uh, Kosovo crisis and uh, when Serbia uh, you know, refused to basically back down on activities uh, during the, the Balkan wars, most Russians, it uh, doesn't matter what their political persuasion was, assumed that NATO was still in the uh, military alliance business and perhaps targeted uh, and potentially uh, could be targeted in the same way against uh, Russia. That's Fiona Hill, a former Russian advisor to President Bush. Obama and Trump. While Russia has struggled to maintain its dominance, Putin has been angered by the way former Soviet republics on Russia's borders, like Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, have joined NATO, the International Military Alliance. And he feared that Ukraine was going to go the same way. He's used the threat to bolster a series of a sense of national pride in Russia uh, in recent times amongst the Russian people which even until relatively recently gave him personal ratings most other leaders could only dream of. Though notably, younger Russians are less effusive and have been keener to take to the streets in recent days. Some strange man, Vladimir Putin. Loves a photo opportunity from rising on horseback, shirtless to rolling in the snow with dogs. He divorced his wife in 2013 after nearly 30 years of marriage. She described him as a workaholic. Donald Trump recently described him as a genius.
I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. Donald Trump, just the latest world leader, to think the man in Moscow could be tamed. We go all the way back to 2001. George W. Bush thought he'd got the measure of the man. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. That was George Bush in 2001. Then in 2003, Tony Blair, Britain, rolled out the red carpet for Putin with a full state visit. He was the first Russian leader to pay an official state visit to Britain since 1874. Can I say I'm... Absolutely delighted to welcome President Putin to the United Kingdom. And I'm also very pleased, of course, that his wife, Lamilla, is able to join him and they will be staying overnight as our guests at Chequers. This is a relationship that I value hugely. Even before President Putin was elected, I took the view that here was someone with a very clear vision of Russia's future and a very clear strategy of how to make that future happen. So, once again, Vladimir, welcome here. It is wonderful to see you here. Thank you for the discussions we've had already, and thank you, perhaps most of all, for the leadership that you have shown in these past months, which is daily contributing to a new relationship between Russia and the rest of the world. That was Tony Blair in 2003. A decade later... David Cameron hailed his common goals in Syria with President Putin. It's no secret that we have had differing views on how best to handle this situation, but we share fundamental aims to end the conflict, to stop Syria fragmenting, to let the Syrian people choose who governs them, and to prevent the growth of violent extremism. The President and I have agreed that as permanent members of the UN, we must help to drive this process, working with partners in the region and beyond, not just bringing the regime and opposition together at one negotiating table, but Britain, Russia, America and other countries helping shape a transitional government that all Syrians can trust to protect them. We know what happened in Syria afterwards. For all those attempts to bring Vladimir Putin in from the cold, none of it has worked. This is what Putin himself said in a warning last year to Western countries. I hope no one will cross Russia's red line. But in each case, we are the ones who will decide where the red line is. That was Putin speaking last year. Well, a controversial overhaul of the Russian constitution means he can continue beyond his current fourth term. In theory, he could remain in power until 2036. Well, from Vladimir Putin's long career, we can see two clear tactics he uses again and again. Violence and deception. With all that in mind, I spoke to Catherine Belton, an investigative journalist, former Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times and the author of Putin's People. I asked her if it was inevitable that Russia would end up invading Ukraine. Yes and no. I still believe that it didn't. this didn't have to be the logical and only culmination because right up till this present time, although he'd committed uh, many nefarious acts, indeed terrible ones, uh, you know, he didn't have to bring the world to the brink of, of World War Three because everything he's done so far, although terrible, even if you're going to blame uh, his cronies or the security services for the apartment bombings that brought him to power in the first 
first place, all these uh, issues of the past have always had a covert element to them. I mean, if even if you just look back to uh, 2014, uh, when the annexation of Crimea went on, that was uh, conducted by little green men that Putin denied had anything to do with the Russian military until uh, there'd been a vote which was actually broadly supported by the Russian-speaking population there to officially uh, have Crimea join Russia. Uh, in 2014, there'd been 150,000 Russian troops massing on the border with Ukraine then, but Putin withdrew them because he knew there'd be severe economic consequences, and he knew also that he didn't have the support among the broader Ukrainian population. So, uh, you know, he didn't have to quite, uh, he didn't have to launch a war in which innocent civilians are now getting bombed. I, I suppose that's the difference, isn't it? But, but like you said, whether it was Crimea or even the the uh, poisonings on UK soil, yeah, there, was the a, there was a degree of no, deniability he, to it. Yeah, that, there was always a plausible deniability to it. You know, well, not necessarily plausible, but it was always, <laughs> you know, he was he was always testing the boundaries. What could he get away with? And yeah, he got away with an awful lot, unfortunately, which may have made this inevitable. But I think even then, it's not something has gone clearly very wrong in his head and he's lost touch with any reality. I wanted to ask you about that because you've, you've been following him for a long time and there's been speculation about both his mental state and his sort of I suppose political state and the uh, the, the amount mm-hmm. of support that actually is around him. Uh, let's focus on the latter first of all. You know, your book was called Putin's People. How many of Putin's people are still behind mm-hmm. Putin in this? I think, you know, clearly uh, he's still very close with uh, senior members of the security services, most notably Nikolai Patrushev, who was always a bit more senior than him at that Security Council meeting uh, last week, where Putin gave the very public dressing down to his foreign intelligence chief, Sergei Narishkin. Uh, most officials seem to be quavering in their boots in front of him when they were speaking, but there was one in particular who did not and indeed seemed to be telling him what to think, and that was uh, Patrushev, the Security Council chief. He was the one who was telling Putin that Ukraine has been taken over by the US, that they're going to use the Ukraine to attack and undermine your regime, and that Zelensky is a US stooge. And what about his mental state? People who've been following him for a long time think there has been a charm I in the, the rambling 90 minute speech, which sort of rewrite yeah. most of history and so on. Do you think there is credence in that and, and I, then also some people are sort of latching onto that as an explanation but it's not a great one if we're now dealing with a incomprehensible madman well i don't think he's quite incomprehensible and i don't think he's a a madman uh but he has uh you know he's so kind of consumed by his own hubris and untouchability now that he's made this grave miscalculation by sort of gambling everything on believing that he could take over ukraine easily but again this is because he's had such poor advice from people like people like patrushev patrushev is telling him that the people of ukraine have been 
been frightened by this US installed regime, i.e. they need to be liberated. And you can tell that he's believed that in the military tactics that he's only kind of sent in initially kind of part of the forces. I think they believe that they were going to have Kiev by now and it's complete and a nut of failure. And it's also, you know, he'd been told by his own government ministers, oh yes, the Russian economy can survive sanctions. We've done all the tests and so on. But obviously that's not the case either because now the markets have crashed, the rubles imploded and people are, are queuing to get their money out of the banks. Well, I was going to ask about that. You, you describe it as a miscalculation. Um, clearly, yeah. having got away with so much in the past, he presumably thought, laugh in the face of the West, I can do what I like again, blitzkrieg Ukraine, and it'll all be over so quickly, and the West are hopeless, they talk tough, they send Liz Truss to see, to see mm. me, and, and nothing happens, and I'll get away with it. Do you think he's been surprised by the strong response from the West? Yes, I think that's clearly the case. And you've seen that, you know, he kind of had this uh, strained expression on his face yesterday when he was meeting with his senior senior economic officials to try and contain the fallout and trying to figure out ways that they could prevent the economy from completely imploding. That though that's moot if he can do that. I think, yeah, he had been able to get away with so much for so long, but it's not just the, the weakness of the West, but it's also his own government officials in, in failing or, or being too fearful to kind of tell him the truth. I suppose the last uh, thing I wanted to ask you is what happens now, do you think, uh, give, you know, in the situation that we are in, does, I mean, he, this, this does not seem like a man who retires quietly. What do you think is the, the, the logical conclu- conclusion from where we are now? Well, you know, I always try to be optimistic and hope that perhaps now that the grave economic consequences are are very clear, that sort of 30 years of building market economy in Russia have now been completely undone. People have lost their businesses that they've spent decades building. Entire fortunes have been wiped out. That somebody somewhere is going to point out to him that this perhaps hasn't been such a good idea. And maybe there will be some kind of impetus uh, for peace talks. I think Macron is, President Macron of France is is right to continue talking to Putin despite the atrocities that are going on. And you've just got to hope that uh, he'll see some sense. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.